0: This is Peter,
1: and this is Tom,
0: and you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Resco, and welcome back to the podcast. Hello, everybody. All right, Tom. So since I, uh, it's my job to set you up on this one, what is our topic today, Thomas? Today, we're going to be looking at the Red Scare.
1: Well. The two Red Scares, the first Red Scare and the second Red Scare, and just basically what is a Red Scare, what happened during these two time periods in American history, and just how it's um, affected the country at that time. And it was massive hysteria and everything that goes
0: with it. Yeah, I guess kind of what we could learn from the, from the events. But uh, we should also mention that this was suggested to us by one of our listeners. So thank you. Uh, let's uh, look, like, you know, Connie, kind of you want to give us a little overview, Tom, about like more or less what is the Red Scare?
1: Well, again, there's more than one, right? So a Red Indeed. Scare is basically the, um, it's the promotion of widespread fear, right? Of a potential rise of communism or anarchism by a society or a state. And it usually refers to these two periods in American history. Um, the first Red Scare, which occurred immediately after World War One, revolved around the perceived threat of, of the American labor movement. You had a lot of unions coming in and we really yeah. saw what happened in Russia with the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, so a lot of this political radicalism that was going on. The second Red Scare occurred Really, right after World War II, so you see these. It's basically we win a war, but what's what's going on after the fact? We're kind of worried about what happened to other countries during this time, and again, the second Red Scare starts after World War II and was preoccupied with the perception that the nation or these foreign communists were infiltrating the government, right? And um, like spies, and they were trying to slowly turn the federal government into a communist state. And the reason it's called the Red Scare is because uh, typically red flags are typically used by communists, so that's what That's why it became known as the Reds, the Red Scare.
0: I guess the plan for today is we'll we'll kind of start off with more or less some comparisons between socialism, communism, um, anarchism, uh, and capitalism, and kind of explain I guess more or less why Americans would be afraid. And you kind of mentioned this, but I guess we'll, we'll obviously elaborate on it. Why Americans would be afraid of communism, and then from there we'll jump into the first Red Scare in 1920. And then we'll hop over to the second one, and that hopefully should give a really good overview of, um, of these red scares and oftentimes, yeah, yeah, time periods. And I think oftentimes when we think of the red scare when we are teaching it, people forget that there was two. Um, everyone always kind of focuses on the McCarthy era, and they forget that this is something that originates during World War One, really.
1: Yeah, the, the first one. The first one was much, I think people were more afraid almost. A lot, yeah. You can make that argument. Or it led to a lot of, some change. like it led to the um, Sedition Act of 1918, Absolutely. which we'll get to.
0: Communism versus socialism versus capitalism and anarchism. Um, but the main difference between socialism and communism itself, right, is that socialism is more comparable and compatible with democracy and liberty. Whereas communism involves creating an equal society, ultimately through like an authoritarian state Uh, And it basically denies any basic liberties, right? Um, Well, the
1: the idea is everything's – it's communal, right? That's what a communist is supposed to be. And really to become a communist society, you have to be a socialist society first.
0: Yes. It's like socialism is like a step towards – It's a step towards
1: communism, which – and really there's never been a true – that's the thing. They always like, oh, we're afraid of communism. But there's never been a true, true communist country And really.
0: Yeah, not as Marx.
1: Yeah, Yeah. not as Marx describes it. So you have these communist – communities maybe that last a while and students will always ask me well, why do they always fail and i always say like well you like stuff right people like things you like having right. your xboxes and your ipads and your apple watches and stuff like that you don't have that in a communist society it doesn't exist it's not something that's considered valuable but you know you have these little societies kids as generations go on they might see these kids you know somewhere else that has these newer technologies they're going to want that and then that's it human beings want things that's why communism is very difficult for it to actually work.
0: Socialism is a slightly different story. And communism, which you mentioned, is also is it's a political system as much as it's economic. It's an economic yeah. and political system, right? And, and it's a way based, of life, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's all based on a single party government, right? It's mostly ruled by dictatorships, as you mentioned. And the idea here is that your this government's supposed to equalize wealth and power in a nation. Communists think of the the word the root word of communism is community. Really, people rule. Again, that's why we said, and as you mentioned, it's never really existed per se, because it always turns into a dictatorship. But it's a, the ability of people to kind of take over and rule themselves, right? And in order to equalize this wealth and power, right? communists would technically put an end to all private property, basically government ownership of factories, railroads, businesses, the government would ensure that we are looking at an fair society prices are set by the government um there's an equality of income so wages are set by the government completely authoritarian state now versus socialism it's kind of like a it's not really based on revolution it's there's still democracy involved it's kind of like a mix of public and private sector so there is some individual liberty versus an authoritarian state Um like, theoretically um, yeah and it's right. more like
1: this i used to say like basically this in a like a capitalist society, people control, like private private people control the means of production. In a socialist society, the state controls the means of production. In a communist society, ideally, it's supposed to be all the people control the means of production. Yep. It just doesn't always ideally work that way.
0: Yeah. And the way Lenin uh, kind of did this uh, with um, Soviet Union, his first, first Bolshevik revolution, he wanted Soviet government that would basically be ruled by, directly be ruled by councils that were made up of soldiers, peasants, workers. That was his way of like bringing these councils together. That way people are directly ruling. But obviously he would oversee all that. So um, there's also anarchy, which is, I guess, complete distrust of government ultimately. It's
1: like no government whatsoever, right? Yep. It's just, just, Um,
0: yeah. And then you have, you know, good old capitalism, which is our system of, you know, it's our economic system. Uh, of competition, you know the idea that you could get ahead by doing something by not being limited by the government, by not necessarily being socialism. there's there's
1: some government oversight, and exactly. again that's not that wasn't always the case. That would be like you know that starts with, well you have some of it, but obviously the New Deals and yeah. the New Deals a lot of examples of that, right? Future podcast, yeah, future but podcast. Ha. You have all those. Actually, I, I was reading all of all of the research for this. There's a lot of future podcasts that were going over some of these things, like the Bolshevik Revolution and
0: yeah, Lenin. We can just stuff. do just do Lenin. I read a book on Lenin. It was actually really good. Uh, it's called The Lenin Plot, and it was how the United States tried to assassinate Lenin. Um, it was a very interesting book. So the Russian Revolution, there's two of them. A lot of people don't know that. The first one fails, um, and ultimately that is repeated again, and you have the second one, which is a little bit more successful. Um, you remember, Lenin
1: gets kicked out, and then doesn't. the Germans help him. They sneak him back in. They do. Because World War II is going on. World War I is going on.
0: Yep. So essentially why there's a fear here is that – this revolution, basically between 1890 and 1910, um, the population of major Russian cities uh, doubles, right? It results with overcrowding, destitute living conditions. I mean, it's it's essentially terrible for the common man in Russia. Yeah. It's and horrible. It's horrible. So now you have these large protests that uh, start off in 1905 uh, of Russian workers. It, this starts from, and this is important for later on what we're going to talk about, because these large protests start by Russian workers uh, in the labor unions, really. And it's against the monarchy. And this leads to this bloody Sunday massacre in 1905. Hundreds of unarmed protesters are killed and wounded by the Tsar's troops. Mm-hmm. And this is a failed revolution. These guys are trying to ultimately take over the government. But they're doing this through workers' unions. You know what I mean? Like Russian workers. And this, is, this plays a really important part for us in our you know podcast today. But they succeed in doing this. Mm-hmm. Second time around, the February revolution. February 1918, right? I think it's 1918. Yeah. Um, same premise. You have these demonstrators. They're clamoring for bread. They take to the streets. And as you mentioned, Tom, Lenin is actually brought in um, to Russia. Uh, at, like he's smuggled into Russia because he was exiled after the first failed one. And he's brought in by the Germans because the Germans want Russia to get out of the war. Oh,
1: yeah, they, and they, Lenin basically said, "You know, put me in power. Help me get power.
0: And I, I will, will overthrow this I, government. I will overthrow the Czarist
1: government, and I will make peace with Germany. And Germany yeah. wants that. He's you know then." they don't have to worry
0: about the Eastern front anymore. Yep. And so he is successful in his Bolshevik revolution. Bolshevik actually means the majority to be specific. And eventually the Bolshevik um, change the Bolshevik. their moniker to communism. I mean, so Bolshevik, you know, being a Bolshevik, you become a communist. And why is that important, right? Tom, so why is it important that this originates or stems from labor? Because this it, it, the idea of these... Workers right rising
1: right. up, disgruntled workers rising up. You're having this in the United States at this time too, after World War One. Yep. During World War One, but mostly after World War One, because a lot of the workers were right, they kind of agreed we're not going to go on strike, we're not going to mm-hmm. ask for uh, increased wages and stuff like that during the war, because yeah. we're you know it's huge nationalism that support the war effort, patriotism that's win this war first. Now the war's over, and they're like all right, so we did what we promoted we can do during the war. Now it's time for you to do what you told them us you were gonna do, which is give us better conditions, better hours, more pay. Yep. And a lot of the factory owners and a lot of these owners like we're not doing that. And and so these that's really the beginning of a lot of the workers, steel workers, iron workers, coal workers, they start to unionize. Yep. And unionizing back then was a fear of, okay, well, if they're gonna unionize, that's gonna rise up and it's gonna be a Bolshevik type revolution here in the United States. And we didn't even really get into it that much I and mean, when it's not purpose of this podcast but the Bolshevik revolution was a bloody revolution it was not like kind of just overthrow and that's it it was a bloody mess yeah where people being killed children being killed right Anastasia all that stuff with the Romanov dynasty oh that's a good podcast so there's a there's a lot there you know
0: a lot of Um, violence a lot of violence and because what you're seeing here is you're seeing the labor force unionizing and essentially striking as well as I would say just kind of going out in numbers, this is very reminiscent protest. to what happened in Russia, which is why it kind of freaks people out. And also during World War One, Americans kind of became very xenophobic. Um, they become kind of afraid of foreigners. And there's a huge nativist feeling or prejudice against like foreign born people. And this stemmed really during the war against Germans, you know, uh, Hungarians and- The Huns, yeah. The Huns, right? That's ultimately what would have- Liberty cabbage as opposed to sauerkraut. I mean, that's the extent it got to. So all this, these nativist fears and xenophobia that was kind of directed against the quote, you know, quote unquote bad guys of World War One is now shifted over to like, wait a second, like the Russians were kind of radicals and the labor overthrew a whole government. Like, hold on a second. So this becomes a, a really a, a, a fear, a, a genuine fear, which is only... Further compounded in January of 1919 in Seattle. Did you read about that one?
1: That's the um, shipyard.
0: Yeah. 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 So in 1919, 35,000 shipyard workers in Seattle go on strike, right? And they want wage increases, they want better hours. But what essentially happens here, which kind of freaks the nation out, is so they appeal to the Seattle Central Labor Council for support, right? And also to other unions. And all of a sudden, they find a lot of like a widespread enthusiasm towards this i mean other yeah, unions pretty much like,
1: all of seattle goes on strike literally this, all right?
0: seattle sixty thousand total strikers yeah, the seattle um, general strike yeah. exactly it paralyzed the entire city so um streetcar service schools ordinary commerce i mean it literally shut down seattle and because of the numbers the sixty thousand people that workers from various positions that just went on strike the media basically freaked out and it's this idea of the red scare stems from the media it's like wait hold on a second like where is this going? Is this is this is going towards a revolution? Is it not? And that's also when you start looking at the fact that a lot of these labor unions um, were becoming kind of infiltrated by a lot of socialists, right? And well, there was a huge
1: well that there was just a lot of immigration coming from southern absolutely. and
0: eastern Europe after
1: World War One. So they're coming into the country and they're bringing a lot of those ideas with them. And you know, some of them are communist, absolutely. Some aren't, but yeah. either. But they just, they, but that's just like you said before, that xenophobia against all of these people coming in, that
0: nativism starts to take over, right? There is this fear, especially, and this is again played up by the media, that the communists or the reds, because they use you know their symbolic red flag, they there's ultimately going to be a worldwide revolution that would abolish capitalism everywhere, and this is kind of being played up a lot in American newspapers. Which... Well, it's also
1: what the communists, I'm sorry to talk over here, it's yeah, no, no, no. also what the
0: com- communists are talking about, right? In
1: Lenin's yeah. book, one of them, Mark's book, they said, you know, yeah. that there has to be this bloody revolution that those in power, right? Yeah. The bourgeoisie aren't going to give it up and that the proletariat has to rise up and basically kill them all. And that's yeah. how, that's how they're going to get the power. Yeah. So you're hearing this and that's, you know, the media is definitely talking about, like you're saying, Pete, people are going to get freaked out. They just yeah. fought a war. They have these, I, one set of ideals and now they're seeing all this you know, labor strife and protests and stuff like that. It's mirroring what happened in in Russia, so they are kind of they're worried that it yeah. could happen here. They think it actually could happen here.
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned, I mean, most of the working people are a lot of them are immigrants, you know, and and that's also why the xenophobia aspects. Like, well, what are these guys planning? And a communist party actually forms in the United States uh, around this time, and. There is a claim that about 70,000 radicals um, ultimately joined some of uh, the different unions across the nation. And one of the bigger ones being the industrial workers of the world, the IWW. While there's this feeling of, okay, why are all these um, unions and labor strikes going on? Why is everyone complaining? Why are they all rising up? While this is happening, uh, all of a sudden you have these dozens right, of bombs are mailed to government and business leaders across the nation. These bombs are sent over to essentially really known business leaders and government. Yeah, yeah. Right. And this government is where- build, government buildings, yeah, business leaders. Yeah. Absolutely. P- and the one that leaders. really becomes important, Tom, right? Which one which one is really the one that kind of sets this time? Well they here?
1: they said a um Richard Palmer, right? Yes. They put a bomb outside of his house. But I believe the um guy himself got killed in the blast. Like yeah, the, so Palmer himself. He blew and his he face off.
0: Get, yeah. He
1: didn't get away in time, right?
0: Yep. Yeah. So U.S. Attorney General, um, you know, a, um, a. Mitchell Palmer is already trying to like eradicate, you know, what many Americans see as a real threat. Like he's already going after these communists uh, that he thinks are infiltrating these unions and causing these bad ideas. And then, as you said, Tom, someone tries to blow up his house where his family's in there and they accidentally blow their, themselves up and the house yeah. is destroyed. And he takes Pal- and Palmer takes this personally. Very much. His family was in a yeah. house and they survived, but that's all right, so what does Palmer do?
1: He's gonna go around what becomes known as the Palmer Raids and basically doing illegal searches, seizures, unwarranted arrest, and he's rounding these people up that he believes are radicals, that they believe are radicals, and they're basically rounding them up and getting ready to deport them. They had no yeah. real due process. And really a lot of it's hearsay. Yep. You don't like you don't like your neighbor or my neighbor's a communist. It's almost yep. like the sit witch trials, right? And then yep, that's yep. what it's often compared to, these these red scares. And actually, you want to you want to get back at someone? You just call the the these n- phone numbers. You just call the police, yeah. or whatever, and tell them the guy down the street's a communist. I've seen him. You know, talking about it. He has a hammer and a sickle, right? He's wearing a lot of red. He's a commie. Yeah. He's a red. And then you know the pomerade, the Palmer and his men are going to come and pick him up.
0: There was no due process. They would show up at someone's house, and someone would speak to them in an accent. They're like, "Yep, good yeah. enough." Boom. They would yeah. just deport them like that yep. day. We, sh- we also should mention that Palmer, um, being the attorney general, he appoints a really young Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover uh, yeah. who like, that should be a podcast, who like rules over the <laughs> FBI and said, basically begins the idea of an FBI here. Um, and it is J. Edgar Hoover that is like a you know right-hand man or the extension of, of Mitchell Palmer, and they're the ones hunting all these um, different communists. But eventually, this gets extremely out of hand. And... People believe that Palmer was really doing that because he was kind of looking for some form of a campaign issue to gain some support for his presidential aspirations. But that never came to fruition because the public eventually decided that Palmer just didn't really know what he was talking about. And, you know, newspapers started to turn against him, which ultimately leads to the end of Palmer raids, which you might say kind of slowly well, the brings the was, end yeah, to this it's first, right scare. first scare. It was yep.
1: basically him and um, Hoover's also kept on talking about May Day, right? He's on saying yes, that in May Day you. of 1920, it was there was gonna be this huge uprising and everyone get ready. There's gonna be this huge uprising on May Day. And it came and passed and nothing happened. Yeah. And then that's when he started seeing the public opinion. But the big thing was in the courts, a lot of the courts started ruling against Palmer also. And that pretty much put an end to his raids. And when the Palmer raids stopped, like you said, the first red scare pretty much fades yeah. away. It doesn't say someone else's ideas are still there. Americans are not suddenly in love with communism and the idea of communism or even immigrants, but it's just kind of like, all right, there's not going to be a revolution. There's some of these people here that have these ideas,
0: but there's people that have all types of ideas. So be it. And it's moving on to the next thing. So Palmer basically ends. And as you said, this more or less ends uh, the first Red Scare. But one thing before we move on um, that I wanted to kind of touch upon is that it is during this time where the idea of being a communist or being an anarchist or socialist gets thrown around by Palmer at African-Americans, like race is brought into this. Mm-hmm. And this is also brought in like as African-Americans are agitators and, and labor unions and so on and so forth. And this idea is brought in and it kind of, you could say that Hoover sticks with this. I mean, Hoover eventually calls, you know, in the fifties and sixties, he calls Martin Luther King, the biggest communist. I mean, so Hoover's, idea of yep. tying communism anarchism and all these things to african-americans begins here in 1919 it's so, also
1: a way of again to, to politically destroy someone or to discredit someone as you just call them a communist yep. it doesn't have to be true but you're yep. saying that and the tone the idea of a communist is so negative in the united states at that time like by just calling someone a communist that, 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 that was that was enough
0: yep Let's kind of fast forward. Um, as you said, it's not like communism is not a thing um, because, let's put it this way, by the height of World War II, so we're looking, you know, like, let's say, I, I think it was like 1944, uh, there was about 80,000 Americans that claimed membership in the Communist Party. Communism is is a, is a real thing in the United States, and 80,000 people is a lot of people. Um, and also, we should mention that during World War II... At this time, we are technically friends with the Soviet Union. I mean, at least for the latter part of the war. Right, so like, you're right. The, the enemy
1: of my enemy is my friend. So exactly. That, that, that's, what, that's basically the mindset. So they were considered the lesser of two evils. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. It's so
1: calling Stalin, lesser of two evils. But still, that's, that's something But then, to be discussed.
0: It, right. So now World War Two ends, Cold War starts. And this early Cold War kind of has a lot of Americans believe that there is actually some decent reason to be concerned about the security of the United States right oh, yeah um, well
1: there, yeah, those those fears weren't unfounded the yeah, soviet absolutely. union for a long time was carrying out carrying out espionage spy activities inside of the united states with the aid of u.s citizens even during world war ii mm-hmm. this was going on so that apprehension about the soviet union grew as the Cold war heated up it kind of made sense i think mean, you kind of it, it was happening yeah yeah so
0: on a we, certain level yeah absolutely and Actually, a lot of the documents were released in the nineties after um, Soviet Union fell. And we just at that point we really discovered the scope of how many spies were actually in the oh, United yeah. States yeah. during like the years directly after World War II and during World War II. They're just trying to get our military secrets. They're trying to somehow be a step ahead of us. Hello, this is Gary Shahot. Welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. Learn what you love and listen to the French History podcast today.
1: And succeed, and they do succeed. I mean, think
0: of right, think of the atomic weapon. So there's also the communist takeover of China, which shocks the American public. Uh, Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. There's actually fear that communism might spread around the world, and communism is not in any way, shape, or form compatible with American idea of capitalism. Like Americans love to. You know, work and make money and ultimately make a better life for themselves where we distinguish ourselves by the things that we own. Um, You know, like we kind of view money as a sign of respect. Like if someone is wealthy, we see that as you know, that person, it, you know, it made it that per- we have respect mm-hmm. towards that. And, you know, if you bring in communism, it basically shatters the entire ideology that the United States is based off of. You know what I mean? There's no more competition. There's no more you drive a Porsche versus you drive a Chevy. It's just a car, you know? And like it's so yeah, un-American no, to think about.
1: Yeah, that's what I always told the students also is it wasn't like just look around the room or look how many people were in different types of clothes, different types of jeans. You have different choice. You yeah. don't have that choice in a true common society. Like we're saying, you might have cars. You'll have that technology, but it's going to be one type of car. And That's just a car. You're gonna have clothes, but it's gonna be the clothes that are made. It's not gonna be clothes, clothes let's say for like leisure or clothes that are gonna necessarily be made to be comfortable. It's just gonna be here clothes. Close.
0: And you know, honestly, I'd I could say. I could totally detest that because I grew up in communist country. You know, there's no question about it. When granted, when I was growing up in Poland in the eighties, communism was on its way out, but it was still very much entrenched in communism and I'm telling you there was you know everyone had a fiat, you know, uh, a fiat, which is obviously an Italian company, was brought into Poland, and there was a factory that made fiats. so almost like ninety percent of people had a fiat, and it only came in certain colors and uh, the clothes we wore were were all very similar. like everything really was like there was no chains. there was no McDonald's. I mean when the first McDonald's opened up, in Russia, I mean, you could, you could days YouTube wait. this. You had to wait
1: for days. Yeah, yeah,
0: you could YouTube this. People waited for days online. And all like, it was
1: was had... a Big Mac. I think all they sold all was, was Big Mac, yeah. Coke and yeah. Fry. But there's choices, in... though.
0: But there's choices, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah. Which is crazy
0: because there's well, it's definitely like... yeah.
1: I mean, it's crazy uh. for people who've never who've always had that choice. Absolutely. Like, who've always had those things. But like you said, that paranoia was very real. Um, to get back to that. Um, yeah. So like, let's, you want to hit up
0: like. Yeah, Truman loyalty boards, right?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, Executive Order ninety eight thirty five, right? Also yep. known as the Loyalty Order, which basically mandated that all federal employees had to be analyzed. So they had like a background check, and mm-hmm. they had to determine whether they could, they would be uh, loyal to the government. And if they was determined they could, would not be loyal to the government, they wouldn't have their job. They would be further investigated. They wouldn't yep. necessarily be thrown in jail, but they'd be basically blacklisted.
0: Yeah. And this is where the FBI really gets involved. You know, in nineteen forty seven, under yes, this executive under order. They just spy on everyone. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, the enforcement they did it for years. They did it forever. Years. I mean, extensive background checks, all federal employees, applicants for federal jobs. I mean, they were looking for anyone, basically, that potentially had anything to do with communism or knew someone that had communist um, ties. From 1947 to 1951, um, the government loyalty boards investigated 3.2 million employees and Actually, if you think about it, they only dismissed about 212 as security risks, um, but another like 3,000 people resigned because they did not want to be investigated or felt that the investigation like violated their constitutional rights.
1: Yeah, they were just like, that's enough. It's not worth it. I'll go, yeah. I'll go work in the private sector. I'll exactly. Be something
0: different. Which is nuts. And then you have – so after this loyalty review board, which is kind of the first step by Truman in 47 to be like, all right, we got to like figure out how many communists are here. Then you have the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Yeah, which and took
1: place in the House of Representatives, right?
0: Yes. Yep. Um, so it's this new inv- uh, agency, basically, that is also investigating possible communist influence, right? But this one is both inside and outside of the United States government. Um, yeah. The biggest so to- one
1: was that they were dealing with the Hollywood
0: Hollywood, industry, right? Yeah, it was Go huge. Ahead. So, so what happened there, Tom?
1: Well, they put this committee together, and they're they're searching. They're going through all these Hollywood actors. And it was under pressure from the negative publicity aimed at their studios. So a lot of movie executives created what's called the Hollywood blacklist that basically barred a lot of these um, suspected radicals Mm -hmm. from employment. Um, If they were in movies, they were not going to be in movies after that. And a lot of these similar lists that happened in Hollywood with these blacklists happen in other industries as well, like all around the country. So these are the people that we think are communists or have communist ties or may have said something about negative about the US government. And it just goes from there.
0: Yep. We should mention that this is kind of ridiculous because what they're saying is, um, HUAC is, is obviously the acronym for House Un-American Activities Committee. But what they were saying is that there's such a huge communist influence in movie industry. They believed that communists were sneaking propaganda into film and they would point to these different pro-Soviet movies that were actually made during World War II because, you know, we were friends with the Soviets, but it's like, no, that's no good.
1: It would make sense at that time. Yeah.
0: I mean, think about, remember World War One. um, when they said that any movie that was made against the British or made the British look bad and they were allies was, was bad according to the sedition acts. So there was actually a case in U S Supreme court. Uh, the movie that came out during world war one, I'm a little off topic, but it pertains was um, the spirit of 1776. It was a movie about um, the United States, American revolutionary war against the British, so obviously the British, the red coats were the bad guys. So anyway, the people, the filmmakers of that movie during World War One, obviously they made the British seem bad because you know Revolutionary War, uh, they were like thrown in jail for that. So the case yeah, went to okay, Supreme Court, and this is crazy. This the case was called U.S. versus the Spirit of 1776. Talk about the irony in that. Crazy. Eventually, Why? it was dismissed. Like, yeah, that's unconstitutional. Like these people, that's okay to make that movie, but that's kind of where we're at here. And as you, as you said, Hollywood executives kind of create their own blacklist. They're like, all right, you know, we don't want the government getting in here. We'll that's take care of this ourselves.
1: Yeah. They, they don't want the government getting involved. So they're like, the government kind of said, all right, we won't get involved, but then you have to kind of police your own. So they create their own blacklist. Absolutely. Kind of. You know, they turn on people just to basically save their own skin
0: because they don't want the government coming and finding other things going on. Absolutely. So there's also the McCarran Act. Essentially, as Hollywood tries to rid itself of communists, Congress decides that Truman's loyalty review board just just does not go far enough, like in protecting national oh, security. Yes, so I'm in nice. 1950, they passed this McCarran and um, I think it's a McCarran Internal Securities Act, something or Security Act. Um, it requires all communist organizations in the United States to register with the federal government. So now, like, if you are communist, you you like we need your own file. Right. It also made and unlawful to plan any action that might lead to an establishment of a totalitarian dictatorship in the United States. Um, And immigrants suspected of promoting communism or immigrants that are coming from Eastern Europe or Russia will essentially barred from entering the country um, and or departed. So Truman thinks that this is kind of like not okay. So he vetoes this bill. Um, He says, and this is a quote from Truman, in a free country, we punish men for the crimes they commit, but never for the opinions they have. Um, because he's saying basically, if you believe in anything that's semi-quasi-socialist or communist, like you should be deported. Um, and Truman's like, no, that's not that's not how things should be. But anyway, Congress um, actually overrules his veto and, and enacts the law, which is kind of crazy. And then Tom, did you cra- hear about is the? It? Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I'm saying it's very crazy. Yeah, because you're supposed to be able to believe what you want. Exactly. That's um, that's, that's, a that's a the American that's way. A, that's the whole. That's the whole
0: basis. Yeah, it's nuts. Did you uh, read about the Venona project?
1: I did read, I did see about the Venona project, but that comes much later on, right? Yeah. It's in 1995, it's... 1995, Yeah,
0: exactly. So this, it's originates in 43 and it is 95. Absolutely. This is cool though. In 1943, the U.S. Army Signal Intelligence Service, right, uh, begins the Venona project. And basically the organization, the U.S. Army Signal Intelligence Service is the precursor or predecessor to what becomes known as the National Security Agency or the NSA. So the project's goal is was to decode any messages that were sent by Soviet intelligence agencies. And they had had like thousands of analysts and they basically decoded enough to learn that Soviet spies had infiltrated essentially all levels of US government. Like we knew this in the 40s. Um, We knew that they were in the Manhattan Project. Exactly. That's how we figured all that out. So 3,000, as you said, 95, 3,000 decoded messages um, that made up this entire Venona papers um, were declassified in 1995. And it confirmed for a fact That 349 U.S. residents had secret relationships with Soviet Union, and therefore that the suspicions that HUAC, um, as well as the McCarran Act had, like, about, you know, communist spies in the U.S. were not necessarily unfounded. Like, something else happens. You know, obviously, 1949 is when the United States learned that the Soviet Union has exploded the atomic bomb. In 1950, um, nuclear German... monopoly is over. Though. Exactly. In 1950, German-born physicist Klaus uh, Fuchs admits that he gave Soviet Union information about this atomic bomb. And while he admits that, in his questioning, names come up of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, um, who were essentially like minor activists in the American Communist Party, but they were implicated enough in this Fuchs case. So w- who are Ethel and Julius Rosenberg now?
1: Well, they're basically an American um, civilians that were yep. convicted of spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. And they were accused of providing top secret information on like jet propulsion, radar, sonar engines. But the biggest was the nuclear weapons designs. And this was during the time like prior to the Soviets detonating their first atomic bombs. Uh, they were actually convicted of spying in 1951 and later executed by the government in 53. Yeah. And uh, they were the first American civilians to be executed for such crimes um, during peacetime.
0: Yes. And that's and, what freaked people out. But that was the whole point. Yeah. The point was to freak people out.
1: They want to say this is not going to be tolerated. Exactly. And for, for decades, there was a lot of argument at saying, no, 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 they really they didn't do it. They didn't do it. Was, they're victims of Cold War propaganda until those Verona papers came out. And it pretty much um, proved that, they no, did. Julius Julius was basically, he was a um, like a courier and tried to recruit other people for the Soviets. And that yeah. Ethel was more, she maybe not as much as him, but she was basically- um, She knew about it. Re- she knew yeah. about it. She was an accessory, and she actually helped recruit her brother David into the spying as well. You see, uh, and um, she worked as a secretary, typing up documents that her husband would give to the so the Soviets. And all of this was all finally declassified in Aussie in 1995, but even more was declassified in 2008 when the National Archives published the uh, grand jury testimony related to the prosecution.
0: Really, so, anyway, I didn't I mean, know that. That's cool.
1: They, they, I've, Julius was definitely guilty, and. Um, Ethel was definitely a accessory to to the mur- to the murder to the uh, to the crime to the espionage wow. so you know whether they should have been killed or not that's one of those debates people can have but they were definitely for the most part were involved with what was that they, they were being charged with
0: and i i actually think that you know the reason that they were killed was to show that you know it doesn't matter if you're an older lady or you know a middle-aged man it doesn't matter like well, yeah, people you look kill like you, them they look
1: at like the most Yeah, they they look like your next door neighbor Exactly. So it also, yeah, so also freaks people out. Like, oh my God, my neighborhood really could be communist. If Julius and Ethel are communist.
0: And remember who, who when we were younger, you would see those neighborhood watch signs all over the neighborhoods? Mm-hmm. Like, those stem from this time period. You know, 1950s yeah, is stem, when you would yeah. see these neighborhood watch signs. Like, there's neighborhood watch. Like, we're going to pay attention to what you're doing. So be careful. Like, you know, Judy didn't bring out her recycling. She doesn't recycle. That's un American. Like, boom, you would be reported to, like, HUAC. You know, like, this is. This is the kind of life that people led in during this time, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, they die in the electric chair, as you mentioned, even though uh, the case was appealed appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court's like, yeah, no, not going to happen. And as you said, now that we know from all these papers, rightfully so, regardless of whether the penalty itself was the right one, but at least they were indeed found guilty. And then you might say like poop hits the fan um, with a Republican from Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy, and that's McCarthy, when, like, yes. this is this was basically like the Palmer version, like the 1950s yeah, it, Palmer. Yeah, right? I mean it, that old
1: that old saying that you know history repeats itself. I mean, you really see it here. I mean, yeah. look at you have a you have a war after a war. What happens? Okay, you know, a, a, we start to have these feelings that Russia is changing or becoming more powerful in both of these scenarios. Right yeah. after World War One, after World War Two. And, um, you know, you're seeing a lot of anti-immigrant feelings and then you're having this fear of communist takeover and you have a loud mouth that comes in and tries to basically use it to their own advantage for their own political
0: gains. Yeah. So just a quick thing on Joseph McCarthy before you get into like what he did. Um So he was in a he was a senator from Wisconsin for three years, but he kind of gained a reputation as a dud, right? They said like he is such an ineffective legislator, and he knew that he was not going to win the January nineteen fifty election, like it wasn't going to happen. So he needed some kind of an issue that could get him reelected. I'm sorry, in nineteen fifty two, and he kind of starts this in nineteen fifty. So he looks for that issue, and and he kind of decides that you know what, I have an issue. I'm going to basically say that I know for a fact that there's communists that are taking over the government. And that's kind of when, you know, this whole thing starts.
1: Well, yeah, he stirs up this fear in the United States that the communists will infiltrate the the government. And he said he has a list, yeah. right? That there's at least 81 separate cases, but even more than that.
0: Yeah, the um, list keeps on growing. It starts 57. Yeah. Then the next day, he's like 81. And then like a week later, he's like 205 yeah, So he's communists. saying has this, and these are
1: suspected, these are, Communists. Like he's saying guaranteed. This is a list of names, even though he's never he never shown anybody never this ended. list of names. So he provided little, or no evidence. But this pro- it did prompt the Senate to call a full investigation hearing, and that's when he starts to call these people to it. When he's you know those famous lines, you can see him on YouTube, on TV. You know, have you now ever been a member of the Communist Party? And he's just basically doing this to advance his own political career.
0: Yeah. And this becomes known as McCarthyism. It's the 1950s. And uh, the McCarthyism actually refers um, specifically now uh, to an unfair tactic of accusing people of disloyalty without proving any evidence. Like this guy's name now took on this definition. And he's just
1: calling people out. If he doesn't like you, you're a communist.
0: Yep. Just accusation after accusation after accusation. And people got afraid to call him out on it for
1: the most part, at least early on, because they didn't want to be labeled a communist. That would Mm -hmm. be the end of them. You know, politically or at least, you know, people can going to look at him a little bit differently. You just call someone a communist back then, back during this age of McCarthyism. That, that's a death sentence for your career anyway.
0: Absolutely. And there was no – like you no longer needed proof of any communist no. party connection. Like that, that wasn't no. required. As long as someone's like, what? you're a communist. And then FBI would literally start an investigation against you. I mean they compiled lists of like – millions, right, of people just questionable with any form of questionable political views. And these kinds started spreading to different branches of government, universities, labor unions, private businesses. Essentially, Americans feared that if they did not take actions against the listed individuals, like, oh, I think this guy's communist, but what if I don't say anything, you know? Like, they might themselves be labeled soft on communism. So now, before you know it, people are like, "Mm, Judy didn't take out, you know, the trash the other day. Uh, I'll call somebody, you know? So thousands of Americans, essentially, as you mentioned, Lose their jobs for political reasons, like Yeah, this, and, it all,
1: yeah, it, and nothing and stops changes, this guy. No, nothing. nothing stops, and it and it changes, it, like uh, how the Americans, um, like the temperament of American society too. They're just like afraid of communist espionage. There's films like My Son John, which is about like uh, parents' suspicion that their son is a spy. Right, this is like a movie. Like you have to think your yeah. son could be a spy. Who even knows it? Like the Cincinnati Reds, that's a baseball team. In case
0: you're, uh, I know Peter. what that um, is.
1: They actually temporarily <laughs> changed their name to the Cincinnati Redlegs because they wanted to avoid, you know, losing money and career run, career ruining um, baseball play, ruining the baseball player's career because, you know, they were called the Reds, the communists. So they actually right. changed their name for a number of years to the Redlegs. Just that's to, That's nuts. Crazy.
0: Well, think of it this way, like to kind of go with this idea of like fear of communism having no limits. Um, I read somewhere that in Indiana, professional wrestlers had to take the loyalty oath, like to be a professional wrestler, you had to take a loyalty oath. And then ex- there was different experiments that were ran by newspapers um in the 1950s, where these newspaper journalists would start walking up to pedestrians on the street, and they had. um they basically had quotes of the Declaration of Independence and they would ask pedestrians on the street to sign these petitions that quoted the Declaration of Independence Um, and no one would sign them because they were afraid that the ideas that were written on there were communist. Like, it was quotes from the Declaration of Independence. Like, that's insane, you know? That's upsetting. So, how does does, uh, McCarthy end? What happens here? Well, basically, he keeps on going around accusing people, accusing people
1: until he goes after the army. Yep. And that was basically his uh, downfall because he goes after the army at the army McCarthy hearings and the army lawyer, Joseph Wench famously calls him, you know, says him, you know, have you no decency. And then after that, a lot of the, the um, colleagues, they kind of start to denounce him in 1954 and they're saying, yeah, he's because he kept, they keep on saying, you know, show us a list. And he's not showing them anything. So they kind of just, he's losing esteem. People realize that he's all talk that the communists have not infiltrated the government to the level that he says, that there's no communist uprising about to happen. Very similar to what happens in the first Red Scare, right? When May Day comes and goes and nothing happens, everyone gets fevered up, right? This is it, this is it, this is it. And then nothing happens and it just kind of fades away. He loses credibility. And when he loses credibility, the ideas of the Red Scare don't go away. I wouldn't say the Red Scare ended, but McCarthyism ends in
0: 1954. Yeah. And then three years later- stays on. Yeah, three years later, um, he suffers from he basically becomes an alcoholic. Um oh, yeah. and then three years later he dies. Uh and that kind of ends this whole idea of like McCarthy's, you know, downfall. But so what happens? I mean, I would say that more or less after McCarthyism, people kind of realize like I mean, obviously you have this idea of there's a fear of an H-bomb, there's an arms race now, people are building bunkers, um, you know, and all that stems from, I wouldn't say directly red scare of communism within the country this is more of red scare in the sense of you're afraid of communists outside the country that are going to like bomb us but i would say that mccarthyism kind of wouldn't you say that kind of brings red scare more or less to well
1: it doesn't i don't it gets rid of the fear that there's going to be a communist uprising in the u.s i wouldn't say it gets rid of a fear of communism yeah you might say it kind of shifts more to fear the soviet union Yep. But still, if you're calling someone a communist at this point, it's still like a bad. uh you, know, you call someone a communist now. It's, I don't know if it holds the same weight as if you called someone a communist back in the 50s or 60s or even 70s,
0: right? You know. What's well, my question? Like, I mean, communism technically, right? I mean, in the United States, I mean, it's I don't. It's kind of funny because I don't think it's as big of a deal, obviously, as it was in the 50s. Ever since well, but you the look politically,
1: though, like when politicians call each other communist, well, these are communist activities, they want to make things communist. It's still, it still has some weight. I wouldn't say it has no weight, but it definitely doesn't have what it did 50 years ago.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but the trend, it really did. Like you had a lot of these rulings, and it did, a, it did impact the United States. You're cool. calling someone a communist even today is still – you know they might they might get a couple extra looks from like law enforcement. I can see that that definitely still happens. They are still going to be politically uh, you know a, a candidate who's a communist doesn't really have much of a chance of winning anything.
0: Yeah. Well actually the last time a um a communist party ran um for presidential in the presidential election was in uh, 1984. Gus Hall was their presidential nominee. Yeah, so they, from I mean, the they have no political power, party. really. I mean and right now I mean it's still a thing. I mean there's still a communist party in the United States.
1: Yeah, but what it also shows is that basically, we, I guess we didn't touch on that much, but like got lot of the, like the censorship that happens, and it really is it's an example of how these unfounded fears can compromise like the civil liberties that we hold so dear to ourselves. You have these fears of this uprising, so we need to keep the public safety, so we have to sacrifice our individual liberty to keep public safety, and so there's that balance between the two, you know?
0: Yeah, kind of like, I kind of bring that up when I talk to my students, you know, when we talk about the Patriot Act, it's the same thing, like, yeah. Like, what price uh, are you willing to pay for perceived feeling of safety? Safety.
1: How much of your freedom are you willing to give up for that? And that's a fine line.
0: Yeah. So, I think this. This. I mean, this is that's not bad, man. We we did this in like record time over here. This is good stuff. I I would say this pretty much covers our red scares. Yeah, the basic
1: ideas and the basic premises.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's what our podcast is about: the basic ideas and basic premises. That's All it. right, we got this. So, as always, everyone, thank you so so much for tuning in every week and listening to us. Um, it really is awesome um that you guys keep on coming back, which means we're we're doing semi okay here. and as always, you know you could find us on social media. you could always find us at HistoryTeachersTalkingPodcast.com. dot com and as like this episode, um which is suggested um actually by a parent of my uh, former student. so, um, please feel free to uh, to make some suggestions and we will uh, most definitely uh, look into those things for you guys. So I think that Absolutely. concludes our podcast.
1: Stay safe, everybody.
0: hope everyone enjoyed our podcast. And if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.